Welcome to Bethany Bible Fellowship, where we are all about the glory of God and the good of His people. It is a privilege to be able to share this online resource with you, and we pray that it is a blessing to you, that it builds up your faith and encourages you on in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. Let's see if you can figure out where this is from. Captain said, the sea is everything. Covers seven-tenths of the terrestrial globe. Its breath is pure and healthy. It is an immense desert where man is never lonely, for he feels life stirring on all sides. The sea is only the embodiment of a supernatural and wonderful existence. It is nothing but love and emotion. It is the living infinite. In the same text, the professor journals of his experience, his first experience treading the sea floor, and he says, it was marvelous, a feast for the eyes, this com complication of colored tints, a perfect kaleidoscope of green, yellow, orange, violet, indigo, and blue. In one word, the whole palette of an enthusiastic colorist. Anybody? Jules Verne's masterpiece, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It takes us deep below the surface and into a world that was completely foreign to its original audience. It was a world of awe, of wonder, of marvelous spectacle, as well as unfamiliar, life-threatening dangers that lurked there in the shadows. You know, those who venture into the sea, even today, they venture into a place where they don't belong. And in a very real sense, they are out of their element. Yes, it may be fascinating, it may be beautiful, it may be awe-inspiring, but it is hostile, and it is unforgiving. And despite what Captain Nemo said, I think it's lonely. But you know, the sea is not the only place where we can find ourselves out of place. Here on land, we can find it a very unhospitable place. One American author put it this way, if people think nature is their friend, well, they sure don't need an enemy. Uh, English outdoorsman, he wrote, nature in her untamed state is savage and unrelenting. The American novelist Flannery O'Connor, uh, she died of lupus at age 39, and she warned, if you don't hunt it down and kill it, well, it will hunt you down and kill you. How's that for comforting? You know, to many of us, the thought of getting away, getting out there in nature, well, that, that's a peaceful thought. It's a, it's a retreat. It's a, it's a rejuvenating experience. But sometimes we discover when we get out there that it can be a very unwelcome one. Paul was out there. He's out there. He's not in the wilderness, and he's not out there lost at sea or under the sea. But he's certainly in unfriendly and unfamiliar territory. He's kept there in the, the city of Caesarea against his will. He's relentlessly opposed by his own people. And I think we can say confidently, he's definitely out of his element. You know, Jesus said, you and I are out of our element. We're in a world that is strange, that is hostile. 
We may think we're, we're very much at home here, and yet we are indeed out of our element. John 15, 19, Jesus said it. He said, you are not of the world. I called you out of this world. Have you found yourself feeling out of your element lately? Ha. Maybe you're getting, getting, beginning to get that sense. You, you, just don't, you just don't belong. I mean, lately we've been hearing about things been reading about things. We've been seeing pictures of things that are happening all around our world, and it's disturbing. We've been seeing and hearing of things that are happening in our own backyards, and we're getting this ever, uh, ever uh, increasing sense that danger is not necessarily out there. It, it, it's here. There, there's no escape from it. We've been watching the news. We've been seeing people protest. Maybe we've even had conversations with people who are close to us, people that we thought that we knew. We thought we knew what, they, what was going on up here in their minds, and we're coming to see maybe we don't know them as we thought we did. And we're realizing that values are so, so different, and people have different takes on things that happened in history, things that we thought everyone was on the same page on. And we're seeing that people are, are, are not on the same page when it comes to something as fundamental as the reality that life itself is precious. These days it can feel like you're a little bit like you're underwater or you're out there all alone in the wild. But you know, being out there in the wild or being underwater, if you know a few things and you prepare yourself, well, you can, it makes the difference between survival and, and disaster, really. And the same goes for the world we're living in right now. Knowing a few things can be very, very helpful for how you see your world and how you live in your world. As we walk through the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 25 this morning, we're going to come across four illustrated principles for walking in a world that's not our own. Four truths that are going to help us survive when we're out of our element. Acts chapter 25 verse 1 says this, it says, now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. Now let me give you a quick refresher course from where we've been and where we are right now. Remember, Several chapters ago, we were in Jerusalem. We were there, and Paul was there, and he was stepping into the temple just as the elders of the Jerusalem church had, had encouraged him to do. He was paying for four guys to get haircuts, to complete their vow, and he was also completing a purification rite for himself. And there he was in the temple, and some Jewish men from Asia spotted him, and they stirred the crowd up into a frenzy, into an outraged mob. And that's where the ruckus became so great on those temple grounds. Well, it drew the attention of the adjoining fortress, the Roman fortress, and Commander Claudius Lysias, he swoops on down and he rescues Paul, arrests him, for his own protection and subdues a potential riot. The next day, he brings Paul out, and they meet with some of the Jewish high council members, trying to figure out, what was, what's the problem here? What's really going on? That doesn't go so well. The day after that, 
Claudius finds out there's a plot against Paul. And so he makes the decision, I got to get this guy out of here and I got to send him to Caesarea. And he sends him, boy, does he send him. He sends him with a couple hundred soldiers guarding him. And Paul makes his way to the seaside city of Caesarea. And that's where the Roman governor Felix hears Paul's case. And after hearing Paul's case, he realizes, I don't find really anything worthy of convicting this man, let alone punishing him. But Felix had some other motives. He didn't want to stir up anything. He didn't want bad, more bad blood between him and those, those Jewish leaders who were under his watch. And so he decides, instead of letting Paul go, I'm just going to let him sit here in prison for a little while. Maybe he's hoping that all of this will just calm down, just go away. We read from the text that he was actually also hoping that in the meantime, Paul would offer him some type of bribe, maybe to, to let him out early. And that's where we left Paul. He's sitting there. He's in, he's in prison under low security, yes, but he's still there. He's held against his will. Two years pass, and so does Governor Felix's rule. This guy is actually yanked from office for the brutal way that he put down an uprising between the Jews and the Syrians there in Caesarea. Brutal, we say. Who was the one who pulled him from office? It was Emperor Nero. And he was upset about Felix's brutality? These were the early years of Nero. Things were a little different back then. But he's pulled from office, and he escapes more severe punishment because, once again, his brother, who's best friends with the emperor, he comes in and softens everything up. A man named Festus comes into play. We know very little about this man. We do know that unlike Felix's predecessor, he was not a former slave. He comes from Roman nobility. And according to one Jewish historian, Josephus, uh, he's a much more reasonable man. He's a much more capable leader. And after he arrives in the province, he wants to get the lay of the land. And so he moves from Caesarea. He goes to Jerusalem. He wants to meet his constituents. He wants to figure out what, what's really going on here. So he goes up to Jerusalem, the epicenter of Jewish life. And that brings us to verse 2. It says, And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. How many years has it been? Two, two years. And here we see once again this reality of people who are adamantly opposed to the messenger of the gospel. This isn't something that's going to go away, is it? You'd think it would go away. It's not going away. It's not some short-lived irritation like a, like a mosquito bite, right? It stings for a while and then you forget about it after a few minutes. No, it was their course was set here. They're fundamentally turned against the good news that Paul stood for and that he had dedicated his life to proclaiming. And that's because of a fundamental reality that Jesus himself hits on in Matthew 12. You, of course, remember Matthew 12, right? Demon-possessed man brought to Jesus. Jesus delivers him. 
And the hyper-religious Pharisees call Jesus out and they say, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. And that's when Jesus makes it very, very clear. The prince of darkness does not cast out his own minions here. He doesn't do that. No, his kingdom is not divided. In fact, a kingdom that's divided against itself, what? It cannot stand. No, 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 no. This is a black and white thing Jesus, Jesus reveals to them. There is good and there is evil. There are only two sides to this coin. And that's where Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather, gather with me scatters. And this is the first crucial truth. And that is to fail to embrace the gospel is to be opposed to it. Paul was definitely someone who was gathering people, was he not? As he was proclaiming the good news of Jesus, people were being gathered into the kingdom of God wherever he went. And that meant that those who were opposed to Paul, well, they were on the scattering side, weren't they? Scattering people all over the place. And that's where... Right here, right now, in our world today, there is a lot of confusion. And that's because rather than black and white, our world has a tendency to see things in shades of gray. It refuses to look at Jesus as the only way and the only truth and the only life. It can't ex accept that he is the exclusive way to be made right with God. And so it embraces all sorts of different people who give off this, this kind of aroma, this scent of having some sort of religious piety. Our world doesn't know who are the pious ones. We're trying to figure it out. They're all over the place. And so it's not Christian pastors anymore, and, and it's not them who should be respected and who should get the free tea times over at the golf course. No, 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 we're not doing that anymore. No, a spiritual person, well, maybe it's the environmentalist you know, who's out there fighting with all his might, he's fighting climate change. Or maybe it's the human rights advocate who is out there fighting for diversity, equity, and inclusion. Or maybe, maybe it's this guy who says he worships Satan over here and is fighting for the rights of Mothers to be able to sacrifice their own children. Maybe he's really the pious one. Maybe he's a spiritual person. See the confusion? Who are the good guys? Who, who's right? Who's wrong? Who are the moral examples that we're supposed to look to here? Our world is confused. What's good? What's evil? What's right? And what's wrong? And I imagine most people in this room probably go, yeah, yeah, I see the confusion. I get it. But you know, it's also easy for those who have come to Christ to get confused too. We might look at other people and we might say, you know, they're, these, these guys over here, they're, they're not that bad. These, these are your allies over here. They don't believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We get that. But you know, they're not part of the opposition either. That doesn't mean that they're on the dark side. No, they're, 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 just, they're just there. There's this huge space that we have in our minds. Uh, it's very wide. It's very deep for those who are indifferent. Some people are just neutral. They're just innocently caught in the crossfire between these two opposing forces. Not according to Jesus, though. 
this is kind of actually even hard for me to preach, but I don't know how else to preach this. This is what God's word says. Either you have confessed your sin and you've embraced the forgiveness that his shed blood on the cross offers you and you've acknowledged him for who he really is, either that or you're still dead in your sins. And if you're still dead in your sins, that means you're still an enemy and you're an opponent of the king. Friends, we have all sorts of relationships, don't we? All sorts, of, all sorts of friendships with people who do not know Jesus. But it's important for us not to be naive. Those who are not partners in gathering others to Jesus are people who to one degree or another, are leading others away. Don't be unaware and let away yourself, especially if you're a young person in this room. Don't be led away because you think they're on neutral ground. And also don't be surprised if the day comes when some may, who you thought may, maybe were, were, were an ally and a close friend, and they turn around and they show themselves to be something other. These men, many of whom were likely once friends of Paul, clearly not friends anymore. And that's because they fail to embrace the gospel. And to fail to embrace the gospel is to be opposed to the gospel. Don't be unaware. Moving on, the end of verse 2 says that these religious leaders, they urged him, they urged this, this new governor, Festus, they urged him, asking a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem. They're there in Jerusalem. Hey, can you have Paul brought here? Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. In the 1954 adaptation of Jules Verne's novel, Captain Nemo asks, do you know the meaning of love, Professor? Professor Aradax, he says, I, I believe I do. And Nemo says, what you fail to understand is that the power of hate, it can fill the heart as surely as love can. You know, one of the baffling things about our strange world is how those who have given us the appearance of being totally safe, even forces for good, they're sometimes exposed to have participated in or actually to have devised in their own imaginations terrible, horrible evils. Here in Jerusalem, these towering, these pious religious monuments that everyone else looked to as the epitome of holiness and goodness and respectability, and yet here they are stooping to the lowest, most evil of places. They're all politeness, they're all innocence before the governor, yes, but Luke reveals they're secretly plotting to murder an innocent man. Can, can, can you grasp that? 
They know that there's nothing to these charges against Paul. They know that. It's been two years. Nothing has stuck. There's no evidence to put him to death. And yet their hearts are completely, totally bent on it. Their hearts are surrendered to darkness. And they're willing to violate one of their most sacred of commandments to satisfy their wicked urges. What's the deal here? How do you explain this? These are the same questions we ask ourselves all the time, right? When we hear of horrible things happening in our world, when we hear of the mother who turned on her own children and took their lives, when we see a pastor or a priest who molested those under his care, when we uh, read of a person who was supposed to defend and serve and protect, and they did the exact opposite, and we ask ourselves, what is going on here? This is a strange world, isn't it? But things like this are no strangers to our world. No, they're not. And that's because of the second truth. Where sin is found, so is slavery. Jesus said to the religious elites, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a, a slave to sin. Do you know what that means? That means that sin is not something that we, we, we dabble in here or there. It's not uh, one of many options. It's not, it's not a diversion. No, for those who belong to this fallen world, and that, by the way, was the starting place for all of us, sin is their master. Oh yeah, some of us have the ability to put on a good show. Good show. We could fool everyone else into thinking that we are the masters of ourselves. We got this. We have plenty of self-control. We have nothing but goodwill and love filling our hearts. But the reality is that there is another power at work within us, a power that actually has mastery over us. And given the right opportunity and given the right incentive and given the proper motivation, well, that master can move us to do things that would otherwise be unthinkable. Jules Verne's captain, he hit the nail on the head, the most powerful force of evil can even fill our hearts just as surely as love can fill our hearts. And that's because unless you belong to Jesus, unless you belong to Jesus, you have another master. You have another master. This is the reality the Bible speaks of. It's absolutely shocking to some of us to see people unashamedly call for the extermination of other people. It's shocking to us. I thought we were all agreed that, that what happened back in the day, that, that hearts that went dark during Nazi Germany, this would never happen again, and yet here it is. We're heartbroken. We're in horror to, to hear of the verdict in, in, in Ohio, the results of, of the vote, that the murder of unborn children, that this is now constitutional. But you know, we shouldn't be shocked. Oh no, we shouldn't be shocked because people are enslaved to sin. And sin is not something that you can just dabble in. We surrender to it. We can do nothing else but serve it. And we think that we can just play with it. We, can, we think that we can keep it on a leash and we think that we can hold it at bay and keep it contained so that we can access it when we want and it's just gonna stay there. We think that we can get away with tolerating it, but it doesn't play games for long. Can a man 
carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not burn? And we go, that's really a silly question. And yet we're shocked when playing around with sexual promiscuity or or self-worship leads us to collectively affirm the right to murder people that encroach upon the sovereignty of our territory. James was right when he wrote, sin, when when it's fully grown, you know what it brings? It brings death. That's where we're at. And that's what was going on here in Acts chapter 25. Even the most religious of them all, they're not immune to their master's beck and call. They were willing to lie and scheme and commit murder if that's what their master called for. Friends, this should be a serious wake-up call for us. Just a serious wake-up call for those of us who have been duped into thinking that we can serve two masters. We bought into a lie, some of us, that we can pledge allegiance to Jesus Christ and then secretly and safely sneak off in the middle of the night to do a little of our old master's dirty work. Flannery O'Connor, she got it exactly right. If you don't hunt it down and kill it, it will hunt you down and kill you. We need to draw a line in the sand, don't we? We can't dabble with this stuff. This is slavery. We need to say, Christ alone is my king. He alone will I serve. With Bernard of Clairvaux, we need to say, I have no other king than Christ. O king of peace, come and reign in me, for I have no other king than you. Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. That's kind of violent. Oh, yes, it is. Because this master can be shown no deference. That's what our attitude needs to be. Fooling, away, fooling around with this old master, it just, it just won't work. Romans 8, 13 says, If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you know what's going to happen? You'll live. That's what we want. That's what our desire should be, Amen? Amen? Let's be satisfied with nothing else. This is life and death we're talking about. And what's that going to look like? How, how, how are we going to go about doing this? Well, that is your homework for this week. You need to get in your community groups. You need to get with your accountability partners. You need to find another trusted believer and begin taking a hard look at the spaces in your life where you are giving opportunity for sin to flirt. And to whisper its sweet seductions to you. You need to expose them. And when you do, show no mercy. Wipe them out. Because where sin is found, so is slavery. Now, that's a lot easier said than done. And it's a lot easier said than done because the reality is we love these little footholds that sin has in our lives. If we didn't love them, we would have said adios a long time ago. Be strong. Be courageous. Take your sword in hand 
and hurl it into the air. And with all you can muster, cry out, this is for my king. He gave his life for me. Now my life belongs to him. I have no other king than Christ. This is what we need to become, church. Let me say two more, point out two more truths to you, and then we'll get back out there. We've talked about this before. Third truth is, even in the chaos, God is in command. When he was asked to, to move Paul's trial to Jerusalem, the governor could have easily said, sure, why not? Let's go. Back, let's, all, let's, let's bring him here, and we'll, we'll do this. These were his constituents. He had a reason to keep them satisfied, to keep them happy, to keep good graces here. Maybe throwing them a bone? Well, maybe that's going to pay off later, later on down the road. Why wouldn't he do that? But as God would have it, verse 4, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, he said, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me. Let them bring charges against him. And someone goes, well, what are the chances of that? Well, maybe, it, maybe it's 50-50. But the reality is, chance really doesn't matter when it comes to God accomplishing his purposes. Even the most powerful of players are not outside of his influence, nor can they resist his will. And they go with his will without even knowing it. Proverbs 21.1 reminds us, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. This is so important for us to remember as we navigate this strange world of ours. Even though we may feel like we are out of our element, we are underwater, it seems like everything is just spinning out of control, and we're at the mercy of these reckless forces of darkness here. Don't forget that your God is sovereign, and he's in control, and his will will be done. Do you know what that means? That means you can hold on to his promises. That means you should not give another thought to putting up that white flag and surrendering to the enemy. Say absolutely not to those, if you can't beat them, join them thoughts. And set your eyes to scanning for signs of how your king is going to work in the chaos. Do you get me, church? Finally, verse 6. It says the governor, he stayed there from somewhere between 8 and 10 days there in Jerusalem, and then he makes his way back to Caesarea. When he gets there, he sits on his official seat and hosts a real trial, and Paul stands before him. The Jews show up. They bring their charges against him which, once again, they're unable to substantiate. And when the time came for Paul to speak, all he needed to say was, Your Honor, these charges aren't true. I'm not guilty. Look at verse 8. Paul argued in his defense, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. This wasn't complicated. Not complicated at all. Without any evidence, well, this case should have just been thrown out and this is where, once again, we see that these officials, they just are not good guys. If Festus was on the up and up, well, then he would have done the right thing, and he would just let Paul go. But he wasn't. He cared more about 
political things than he did his own integrity. And so he makes a play to draw this thing out, and he leaves it, he brings it before Paul, and he says, well, Paul, what do you want to do? Want to go to Jerusalem? It's, it's up to you. And at this point, it seems like it's becoming very crystal clear in Paul's mind that his options are dwindling here, not going to get justice under Governor Festus. And so he leans into what he knows of Roman law and the provisions that it allows for its citizens. Verse 10, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. In Romans 13, Paul lays out he lays out for us what our posture should be to our imperfect earthly authorities and governments. We need to recognize God's put them here. They're actually, uh, actually God-ordained entities here, and they have a specific role in a specific realm over which they are to preside. They are to keep evil in check. And so when it comes to the government operating in this realm that God has allowed it to operate in terms of judgment and justice, well, then Christians are called to submit to that. That's exactly what Paul was doing here. He even says, I, I'm willing. If, if I'm deserving of anything, okay, I'll submit to that. That's the way God wants it to be, if I deserve it. And at the same time, this rule of government, it also is actually a resource to Paul, a resource that he can access uh, Paul knew that this Roman citizenship of his, it came with certain rights and it came with certain privileges. And in his mind, this is a gracious gift of God. It is something he can actually tap into and be a part of and walk through certain steps for the sake of his own safety and his own well-being. And this is something very, very important for us to keep in mind. And that is, just because we're called to submit to governing authorities when it comes to the realms that God has entrusted to them, well, it doesn't mean that we just give them a pass to do whatever they want, to use and abuse power. Or that we shouldn't hold them accountable for operating uh, for not operating and abiding by their, the rules that they are sworn to follow. And if there are, there are legal steps that we can take to protect, well then, by all means, this is a gracious gift of God, our citizenship. When Paul appeals to Caesar, he puts the governor in a corner here. Puts him in a corner. Governor Festus, he was dancing around what he knew was right and wrong. He's looking for a loophole to advantage himself in this situation. I want to advantage myself with these new constituents here. I'm a new governor. I want to keep the peace. The last governor, well, he was pulled out because he couldn't keep the peace. I want to keep the peace. I want, how am I going to do this? But Paul, he makes use of what he knows of this Roman legal provision that propels his case beyond the reach of this man and takes him straight to Rome. And the governor confers with his associates and realizes, I don't, I don't really have options here. 
to Caesar you go. You and I need to understand governing authorities over us, they're not a threat to God's plans. They're not a threat to his plans. Instead, they are means, means that he can and does use to bring about his plans. Human authority, it's not an obstacle to God. It's a tool in God's hands. And that means that you and I can work within the imperfect systems that are in place and fully expect God to bring about his purposes through them, maybe even in spite of them sometimes. Have you been frustrated with those who fill the seats of power? You know, our goal as Christians is not to overthrow the government, but to look to the one who has authority over it. And consider what it means, what, what means he's given us to pursue and to honor his purposes within it. So here at the end of Acts, we might say that Paul is out of his element. I think he is. He's no longer a free agent. He's not able to move wherever he pleased. The world in which he finds himself, it's, it's hostile, it's unfriendly, it's threatening. And yet, he's able to step forward as a servant of the one true king. And that is in part because, well, he's not surprised by the opposition that he faces. He knows that those who don't embrace the gospel, well, they're going to oppose the gospel. In fact, none of this that is, that is being conjured up against him, none of it's shocking to him. None of it's deflating or defeating to him because he knows that where sin is found, well, you're, it's, it's, it's a slavery issue here. It, it can be really bad. These glowing religious elites, capable absolutely capable of the absolute worst. But because of his freedom that he was granted in Christ, well, Paul can live all out to please his Savior. And that meant he can refuse to sink to the level of these opponents. Well, everything seemed to be up in the air. Everything seems to be out of control. Paul knew that even in the chaos, God is in control. And so he could continue to trust him and rely on him and look forward to how he's going to come through on, on his promises. Paul knows, God promised me I'm going to Rome. So one way or another, I'm going to get there. Finally, he knew what it meant to have a proper relationship with the governing authorities. These aren't an obstacle. Instead, they're a tool in God's hands. How's God going to work here? What's going to do? And that meant where, where it was his obligation, he would submit and he would show respect. If I'm guilty of anything, sure. Go ahead and kill me. But it also meant where it gave him opportunity, he could confidently exercise his rights and pursue God's purposes. Friends, you and I are called to be in this world. We are here in this world. We know God wants us here right now, but we also know because of Jesus, we are not to be of this world. We don't belong to it, nor are we to live in line with it. So let's not be surprised when it opposes us. And let's not allow ourselves to be enslaved to sin along with it. And let's continue to move forward knowing that in the chaos, God is in command. And let's respectfully and wisely live out our earthly citizenship for the glory of God and the good of his people. Amen? Father, we, as we continue to live out of our element, as we uh, await our entrance into our heavenly home, 
may we unwaveringly bring you honor and glory. Lord, we, we thank you now for this time that you've given us to, to celebrate, to remember the saving work of Jesus, which called us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. And Lord, now as those serving communion come on forward, may our hearts reflect on our need for you, our dependence upon you. May they confess sin where sin needs to be confessed. May they rejoice in the, the freedom and the forgiveness that we experience because of Jesus. We love you, Lord. Bless this time we have. Thanks for listening to this message from Bethany Bible Fellowship. For more resources, visit our website at bbf.com oc.org.